Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam LeVinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. Hello, this is Will Hutchins from Espresso Capital. Espresso excited to be supporting the E2 podcast. As a leading North American venture debt firm, we're passionate about helping founders and entrepreneurs build successful businesses. We're also passionate about helping founders retain control of the businesses they build. Since 2009, Espresso has provided founder-friendly, non-dilutive capital solutions ranging in size from $1 million to $10 million to over 250 fast-growing North American technology companies. Please visit us at EspressoCapital.com to learn more and join the many founders that have used Espresso to help accelerate their growth. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of entrepreneurs and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. And today is my great chat with Steve Holmes a true lifetime entrepreneur. From t-shirts to golf courses, security cameras, insurance, athletic footwear and apparel, and more recently, and maybe most notably, spring-free trampolines, Stephen has put together an incredible career. In this episode, we discuss Steve's involvement in the origins of Clublink, the largest owner-operator of golf courses in Canada, his pivot into entrepreneurship and his various ventures along the way, and then, of course, the ever-increasing success and popularity of the Spring-Free Trampoline, a brand that has completely transformed the nature of backyard play with over 400,000 tramps sold worldwide. Steve's breadth of experience is incredible. He shares so much insight in this one on manufacturing overseas, hiring talent, raising capital, his role as a visionary CEO, and much more. I got so much value from this one, so without delay... Here is my great chat with Stephen Holmes. Let's start with the origins of your entrepreneurial journey. So back in 1993, you get involved on the ground floor of Clublink, which fast forward to today, I don't know if it still is, but at one time, it was the largest owner and operator of golf courses in Canada. How did you get involved in the business? So by profession, I'm a chartered accountant, or in today's terms, a CPA, um, certified public accountant, I think they call it, or whatever it is. Um, and so I had the fortune in the late 80s, early 90s of um, providing financial services and accounting services to the Simmons family. Um, and most specifically got close to uh, Bruce Simmons and um, Bruce and his brothers owned Cherry Downs uh, Golf Course, which was in Pickering. And I was doing the accounting work for Cherry Downs in the sense of, you know, it's statutory filings and 
financial statements, et cetera, as their accountant. And um, one thing led to another, and and Bruce started to have a vision about the state of pub, private golf courses, for which Cherry Downs was one. And they were in trouble. For probably about eight months to a year, I, I was the guy building, you know, what does this model look like? What is an ideal private golf course? How many members does it need? What's the membership fees? How do the turn into annual fees? Raised a bunch of capital and had a lot of fun, but, you know, also probably worked harder than I've ever worked in my life. Only, you know, survived a few years before I uh, succumbed to the, the the pressures of growth, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and so it's fun still to watch the things that you were part of building succeed and continue to grow. Would you say that that first experience gave you the urge to go out on your own and sort of leave the world of chartered accounting behind? Like, when did you first get the bug to be an entrepreneur? I got married very young and started having kids very young before I really had finished my education. And so I was going to university and um, I was married and had a couple of kids and was working evenings uh, and weekends at Consumers Gas in their customer service dispatch department, trying to do all of those kind of things. And, um, and, and to be honest, what I would say that taught me was that that I had a, a high, de- I had high capacity and because, and, you know, I was working four to 12 or and weekends and going to school, going to university during the day. And, um, uh, and I continued that that process. And I remember I was making about 45,000 bucks a year working for consumers gas. And I got a job offer from a firm at the time called Murray Kiso. And my starting salary as a, as an art clean student was going to be 14,000. And I made that switch. And it, that I think was the defining moment of, of becoming a true entrepreneur. Because when I became an articling student in a, in a public accounting firm, all of a sudden I was exposed to entrepreneurs and business owners and large companies that I got to see, wow, this is how it actually works. And I became very close to uh, one of the partners of the firm and the firm, the firm kind of ex- it blew up. Uh, it merged with a, another firm and a few of the partners didn't go with the merger. And I went with one of those partners and I was a really young guy. And so I was his only staff and he and I had an office uh, um, on, on Richmond street downtown. And one day he called me and said, Steve, I'm moving to Brussels. And I said, well, what do you mean you're moving to Brussels? Yeah, I'm moving to Brussels. When I'm already, uh, I'm already there. And I said, what do you mean you're already there? Like, what am I going to do? And he says, I leave it to you. You're fully capable. Let's go back to the sort of the, the three years at club link, that experience. So you, you mentioned that you felt at the end of that journey, circa 1996, that you sort of felt somewhat burnt out by the high growth. What was the next chapter of your career? Interestingly enough, my end of the end of Clublink, it was a great learning experience because um, I was the CFO, COO at the time. And um, we were a public company and we were probably a little too young, a little too immature in the, our public status. And uh, our stock price was falling. Somebody has to be the fall guy when the stock price is falling. We had a board chair at the time who just didn't feel that I had the what I would call the Bay Street kind of pedigree to help drive the market makers to support the stock. And and I and I you know it's interesting. I look back on it. And I, I I never held any regrets. And Bruce Simmons and I walked the golf course for eighteen holes and came to an agreement on my exit. And and I left. And I hadn't been gone two weeks when I got a phone call from another private equity firm who said, we have an investment in a business that needs you. And at the time, they had just decided to start up a private equity slash venture fund. 
and uh, they was looking for new startups to invest in. And I had had a relationship with them and I'd always had this idea. I wanted to be on my own. And so I was able to, I had an, I had an idea, which we, which we can talk about verify. And so I was able to go to this new vehicle of new court and I got 2 million bucks from them in 1997, leveraged that into growing what was Verify Technologies. And Verify was the world leader and the first company in the world to ever put digital cameras in vehicles for the purpose of recording drivers and passengers. And our focused market was taxis. And we learned a ton about that too. Lots of headaches and lots of journeys in that process. And ultimately that business was uh, sold to a private equity based uh, company in, in Chicago in nineteen in 2015. So I held that for almost 18 years and it was very, very successful. What was the pitch to those guys? Like to, to secure that 2 million bucks, this was a pretty revolutionary technology at the time, right? So there wasn't really a benchmark. How did you give them the confidence to write you that check? Well, I guess I had had a good track record with them in the sense that I had been associated with Newcourt. I used Newcourt to finance golf course equipment purchases. Then I used them to finance restaurants and they had made money on both of those transactions successfully. And uh, so my pitch to them was that there was this emerging idea called digital imaging and that the this digital imaging space was going to explode and that there was going to be mass disruption. And at the time, if you can just imagine this, the largest chip, the largest chip, a single chip could hold eight pictures that were probably in aggregate half a megapixel. So that was it. It was quite an amazing thing. And so I showed them and I had gone to them with the pitch that I wanted to be low tech, low tech. And as this business continued to emerge, that we would continue to to iterate and grow. So we would start with a low tech application and that's what we did. They bought into it. In the end, it was a very successful journey. Okay. So let, let's get to the origins of Goba, which looks like it takes us all the way back to 2003, correct? There was a company called RMP Athletic, which has been around for 30 plus years. And uh, two brothers who run that business, had run that business from the beginning, uh, Mike and Paul Dion, who are, you know, who are what I will call Canada's Nike story. And what I mean by that is they were selling shoes out of the back of their car, just like Phil Knight was, and they were doing it at, at running races. And so that, that business, uh, Mike and Paul and, and, uh, myself have been investors in a number of entities and they reached the stage where they wanted to try and find what could their future look like in the word kind of retirement or stepping back. And so we took that business, which was RMP Athletic, which was focused on footwear and apparel, and we built that and we combined that with what was spring, what is spring free trampoline. And that falls under what is today the Goba Sports Group. And our goal is to add more and more things. Um, but it's a very it's a very interesting space. It's a changing space. The sporting goods space has struggled. Um, so we're, we're navigating that journey very carefully. And so we represent some, we have, we own some of our own brands and then we represent some other brands for people, uh, in certain geographical areas. So, so Teva, for instance, or Hoka one, one, or, or Umbro are owned by, um, other corporations. And we represent those brands for them in that case. Whereas we have some of our owned brands, uh, in the case of uh, a spring free trampoline, which goes back to Oh three, 
And, um, you know, Viva Active, which is a company that we formed a few years ago that's focused on, on what we'll call backyard play. So Dr. Keith Alexander created the first springless tramp made from kebab sticks and a sewn mat, if I've got that right. This is circa 2003. How did you and Dr. Alexander come together? You know, it's the old story. Once again, loose ties. Um, I have uh, I had a business relationship with uh, an individual in Christchurch, New Zealand. He introduced me to the trampoline in its raw form. It's kind of original form. And Dr. Alexander had been working on it for about 11 years. Um, and it was sent to me in, I guess, uh, late 02 uh, or early 02, maybe maybe January or February of 02 was sent to me in a you know, kind of a picture. What do you think of this? And I went, I think that's ugly. By October of 02, I had kind of uh, reached an agreement with the university and Dr. Alexander to, to buy the underlying patents and to take the business uh, to a different level and try and bring the world a trampoline that didn't have any springs or frame at the jumping surface. 15 years later, we've now put about 400,000 trampolines into the into the world. What was so compelling about it? I mean, there, there's the obvious safety issue, right? Like 92,000 or something emergency room related injuries um, coming from trampolines in 2001 alone, most of them from kids falling off of the trampoline or actually falling into the springs causing injury. What was the draw for you to this? Well, I think I go back to my to, to my heritage. An opportunity arose. I didn't see any, I saw a real clear value proposition. I didn't see any competitive forces which told me I shouldn't do it. And so for me, it it was, could this actually work? And I didn't know the answer to that. So I, I went through a process of what I would call some real, real serious market trials, not not with selling, but but with exposing the, the trampoline to the large market as, as best I could and to get people's reaction and feedback. And I was looking for two types of feedback. I was looking for kids to see how they reacted to it because if, because ultimately the kids were the user. So I needed kids to think that this was cool and this was, wow, this is amazing. And I needed parents to buy into the idea that, mm, okay, this is safe. And yeah, this is really something I could put in my backyard. For me, it was about saying there's an unserved market here. So let's give it a shot. There was one retailer in the world that did not sell trampolines and that was Costco. And so that became probably my number one objective was to figure out how to sell Costco a spring-free trampoline. That was the number one objective for me. Uh, and if I could do it to Costco, they could help create enough market awareness, demand, and help my manufacturing costs to justify it all. Was that the first distribution channel that you were using to test product market fit? Yep. It was hard work, but Costco was our first big play. And, uh, and the reason was that Jim Senegal said he'd never sell trampolines. And we got them across the finish line in, in 2000 and late 2004 for a 2005 trial. And that trial went exceptionally well. And we were able to continue to sell to Costco for a number of years. How long was that selling process? And did they raise issues with this out of the gate? Or were they really just in awe of how unique this product was and they, they were sort of drawn to it? Well, as you know, I think every business, I mean, you know, we always, you know, you get asked, was it luck or is it hard work? And there's always some fortune in luck. I mean, it is hard work and you got to work really hard. You got to be diligent in, in anything you choose to do from an entrepreneurial perspective. But in our case, 
we got lucky in the sense that w- the guy that we first met at Costco Canada, he was willing to champion the product. He, he liked it. He was a parent. He had kids. And he was willing to take it upstream, which could have been very, very risky for him. And when he did that, it probably took us three months to get an answer. And they came back and they said, okay, you can sell it in Canada, but nowhere else. So you can sell it in Canada, but you can't sell it anywhere else. And we went, okay, no problem. We'll sell it in Canada. And, um, and so that's how we started. And then we thought, oh, well, okay, we'll, in the U.S., we'll build a dealer network. So we started the process of building a dealer network in the U.S., and then Costco came back and said, well, it's going so well, you can sell it in the UK now. So, okay. So we went and sold it in the UK. And then it was going so well there. They said, well, it's going so well, you can now sell it in Japan. So, okay. So we went to Japan. And then, it, and they, well, it's going so well, now you can sell it in the US, but only online, not in stores. And I remember we went online in, I guess it was uh, late 2000, and it was, I guess, around 2008. And uh, Costco online put the trampoline and we sold 3,500 trampolines in two weeks. We're talking about like 2008. This is a big ticket item. It's a large item. It's sort of like it's a little bit before its time in terms of consumers shopping online being comfortable buying a trampoline on off of a website like what that that's huge for you guys. Yeah. I mean, we only had six employees and in a two week period we had done, you know, over three and a half, four million dollars in revenue. You know, it was like we were going, what the? I mean, I can't tell you. I mean, it was all hands on deck. We had been operating in China for certain parts of our manufacturing since since the early part of 2004. And uh, but in 2008, we, we built our own facility and opened our own facility. And we still have that to this day. So when you first started manufacturing offshore, what lessons did you learn? Or can you talk about some blind spots that you didn't see? when you started manufacturing this product out of China? Oh, oh yeah, totally. Um, first was that I thought that, um, and this goes back to just being experienced and naive, the kind of a combination is that when we first went to China, I thought, well, boy, we're coming with this kind of a, a volume. Boy, that's, this is quite substantial. And I remember first meeting with the, manu- the manufacturer that we had chosen, and, and they kind of said, is that it? <laughs> And we kind of went, well, oh, it's quite a bit. And they went, nah, that's not really very much. Um, so that, that was the first kind of learning. And so I would say over that two to three year journey, I was in China probably four to six times a year. And each time I go, I'd either get faced with one, um, we're going to increase your price or two, um, we're going to try and save some money on this component, which just says, oh man, this, this business is only as good as my manufacturing partner. And and you and I didn't feel like we had much control there, and that that's what actually led to saying, "What if we did this ourselves?" Moving manufacturing from one, uh, not not just one country, but but one supplier to another, um, there's probably issues with turnaround time and efficiencies and quality and everything else. Did it go as smooth as you thought it would? So no, it didn't go as smoothly. There's lots of things that we learned. There was a great book I read. It called Mister China. And in Mr. China, he, he says in the book, you need to check your logic at the door. And, and, and so if you try and apply logic to the decision-making process, you will become highly frustrated. So you need to check your logic. And, and no matter how many times I kept saying that to myself, I couldn't seem to actually do that. And so when things that just seemed totally illogical would go wrong, and I can tell you there's lots, you know, we, we take a deep breath and say, why are we surprised? We, we should have known this. In my humble opinion, in today's world, 
you have to be prepared to do things that are totally outside of your comfort zone. It doesn't mean that you have to permanently do them, but you have to be prepared to do them. And, um, and building a factory was something I never, ever, ever envisioned. But I felt my business was at risk if I didn't. What else was out of your comfort zone? Um, well, obviously language. You know, I'll never forget we, you know, you, you know, you're, we had decided that we wanted to run our business and we still do at the highest level of integrity. In China, most manufacturers, they run two sets of books. They run their kind of cash set and then they're set for the government, you know. And um, there used to be lots of pay, payments to people, what, what is called the red envelope trick. You know, you, you'd hand a red envelope full of cash to a government official and you wouldn't have to comply to a rule. And we decided we didn't want to do that. It was everywhere. And um, so we had, a, we had a manager in our factory at the time who was very close to a number of government officials. And so I was over one time and he said, we've got to take them all to lunch. And for an hour and a half, they, I had no interpreter there really. And uh, for an hour and a half, they all spoke in Mandarin and laughed and uh, drank very expensive scotch and shark fin soup. And, you know, and at the end of the day, we paid the bill, which was something like 2000 US dollars for lunch. I walked out and I just felt so empty. It was just like, oh my goodness, what did we just do? Seven months later, we found out that that, you know, that probably that lunch was them all laughing at me to talk about how they were going to take advantage of us. And uh, they had been for that seven month period. And we probably had had about a million just over a million U.S. dollars that, that had been kind of manipulated through the system, through kickbacks and increased uh, purchase orders and, uh, you know, used machinery that was sold to us as new machinery. And um, boy, what a learning experience. I mean, there's, there's so much fodder, entrepreneurial fodder about the cost savings and the advantages of moving offshore to, to handle manufacturing. But what you're talking about is kind of the opposite side of this coin which is, you know, the cost of the quote unquote red envelope or the, the, the expensive lunches, the, the blind spots that you just don't see when you start operating there. Yeah. And once you start, you can't stop. People have said in the past over the last few years, you know, we should bring manufacturing back to Canada, or bring back manufacturing to, to the United States. I, I will make two observations. One is China has become kind of the grocery store for supply chain. So if you need a zipper, you, you can have a thousand different companies ready to you know, say, here's the zipper. If you need webbing, you, there's a no shortage of people who say, oh, yeah, here's webbing. Um, if, if I move manufacturing back into, into Canada, for instance, let's say, or the United States, even in the southern United States, those supply chains have gone. They've gone to Asia, whether it's Vietnam, whether it's, whether it's Taiwan, whether it's China you know, they've gone over there. So all of a sudden, in order for you to do your manufacturing, you still got to find that supply chain, that resource. And if you if you're fortunate that one is here, you might find one, or you might find two, but you're not going to find a multitude, which ensures that you can manage your costs. And that's, that's one of the challenges of coming back. So you're selling tramps in, in China now, also the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Europe, right? What is the breakdown? Oh, it's really beautifully split, to be honest. We're basically, we, we, we kind of look at it this way. Um, you know, the, the Commonwealth, if you want to call it that, the, the European Union slash Canada <laughs> is about a third of our business. Uh, the U.S. is about a third of our business. And, and the Southern Hemisphere the, is, you know, Asia and the Southern Hemisphere, the Australasia, Australia, New Zealand and the Southern Hemisphere uh, and Asia is about a third of our business. So we're really well distributed that way. So 
3,500 units in 2008 online alone. Uh, lots of growth after that. Costco is moving this uh, into different locations in different countries. How is this business being financed? You know, it, interesting enough, we were really, really fortunate. So we we always um, so I was I had been the venture capital route. Uh, you know, I had I had done the pitches. I had had the accountability. Um, and uh, we were very, very fortunate that in the case of Spring Free, we decided that we would only do what we could through organic growth and organic financing. So we were savers. So we tried to be as efficient and as effective as possible. And um, so when we made the decision to open in the factory in, in China, that was through self-funding. Um, and that came from the success of the operating business. I, I had been down various roads and, and I felt that we, we could control that um, ourselves and do it through a self-funding mechanism. And so we've never, we've never been forced to take outside capital. So there have been some challenges in that process, but, but, uh, that, that's the way we had done it. Why do you think so many startups today are so obsessed with raising pre-revenue, uh, or early stage funding? Like there, there's a lot of celebrating the raise, so to speak. So I haven't figured out how the world values companies I still am stuck with the, you know, you're a multiple of your, you know, your historical earnings or a multiple of absolutely controllable future earnings. Now we've, we've got this new stage, which is, um, which is, I have an idea and the idea is disruptive and the idea is huge. And so they go out and they, they do these pre-raises because they need money to actually get that idea from, from idea to concept and from concept to first market. And so, you know, what we've got is we've got a bunch of young people who have got tremendous creativity and skill set in areas that that old guys like me may not have, um, you know, and and so those young people don't have the depth of resources. And so they go to the markets and they have there has been a, a significant amount of capital available through private equity. And I would say, in fairness, and this may be uh, people may be critical of me for saying this. I think there's two types of private equity. I think there is, you know, San Francisco, California, Palo Alto, Silicon Valley, whatever you want to call it. I think there's that private equity. And then I think there's the other private equity, you know, which is much harder to come by, which is much harder to do those initial raises. Um, there's been a huge amount of money in pension funds that have had to find places to put assets. Um, and they've got, you know, I, I read just last week that, you know, there's a lot of pension funds who have chosen riskier based investments to try and make up some of the deficits they've got in their obligation of their funds. And so I think we're seeing I, I think we're seeing a new you know, when you when I went to university, we knew about the oil field concept. You know, you drill as many holes until you hit oil. When you hit oil, it pays for all the other ones you drilled. We didn't see that in the 80s and 90s in in venture capital investing, but we do see that now. So, yeah, I think that's why people celebrate the raise. Um, you know, you got young people coming out of university with a dream and an idea and they put a value towards it and they get money and they go, wow, I've made it. And I always say, no, you haven't made it. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best. It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. 
all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. What do you think that entrepreneur that says, yeah, I've made it, doesn't see or doesn't understand when they raise the first, say, one, two, three million bucks? Well, what I don't, when they raise the money, what I don't think they see is the work that's going to be necessary to validate the idea. Uh, it's always, you know, the old story we all hear about it. Somebody says it's going to take, uh, it's going to take me two years and two turns into four and four turns into six. And so then somebody says to them, well, if you say two, make it four. And so they go, yeah, okay, I've already factored in that it's going to take me twice the time I really think. And then it still don't hit the milestone. It's hard. Right? I mean, I think what's really, really difficult is, is that people actually sometimes miss how hard it is. Um, and, and hard isn't just that you get to a place where you've been validated because you've got revenue hard is to getting to the place where you're actually producing what I believe is what we were all called to do, which is provide a return to shareholders. And so the, the struggle is, is the return to shareholders an incremental increase in the value of the business or is it, um, is it a return through profitability? And that's where the that's where the confusion is taking place. And so young people today are getting caught up that I don't need to make money. I may not even need to get to revenue. I just need to continue to grow the value of the business until I can find the the exit that I need that val that validates all this hard work. And and I think that's sometimes a little naive because I don't think it happens as often. We hear about it, of course. You know, we hear about an Uber, you know, with a huge valuation, whether it's seventy or eighty billion dollars. Um, and we know it's burning in cash, but it's been validated. But I, I think those are rare. So when you look at Spring Free through this lens, do you ever get tempted by the prospect of raising, say, 10, 20, 30 million bucks to take this thing to the next level? And just give listeners a scope of like how many of these tramps are actually being sold because it's a crazy success story. Yeah, I mean, we, we've we've sold four hundred thousand trampolines, and we are very profitable. Uh, we're we're proud of our profitability, and uh, we're proud of what we built in Asia. And and our profitability, in fairness, has spun has spun off a, a spun off a number of new businesses. So you know, the trampoline business enabled the creation of Goba Sports Group to be a, a viable you know future growth opportunity. Uh, the trampoline business, I, I was constantly dealing with foreign exchange related issues with all the different currencies. And I kind of said, why is it that I can't do this? And so we developed and started our own foreign exchange company, which is pretty, very, very difficult. 18 months to get licensed in Canada. And, you know, so we've been very, very fortunate. So you asked the question, have I ever been tempted to go out and raise capital? You know, I think anytime you raise capital, you better have a really darn good reason to do it. And you better have a pretty you know, significant plan as to how you're going to use it. And, um, and I don't want to waste it. So, because of course, raising capital either results in, in some form of a, you know, a loan payment interest cost, or if it's a debt issue, or if it's an equity play, it, it requires that you take dilution. It requires that you have accountability. It's different. Um, you have to ensure the expectations of the investor are aligned with your expectations. So I just haven't found that that kind of capital would incrementally change our outcome in a way that I could that, that could materially re result in significant growth above what we're doing. We are a high end, very niche market product. We we represent about only three to four percent of the marketplace, but we do it really well. <clears throat> we are the kind of 
for lack of a better word, I call it the Patagonia of trampolines. We, when somebody buys our trampoline, they get a 10 year warranty on everything. It's not a limited warranty. So when they buy it, it goes in their backyard. It should look the same 10 years later. And, um, you just can't say that about anybody else in the space. And so we're, we have fun, right? I mean, remember every day, if you're not getting up, having fun, then, then we'll stop. Um, the answer is if I could bring on $20 million based on spring freeze business, I may not use it in spring freeze business. I may use it to leverage new opportunities that spring freeze business has opened our eyes to. And, and, but you're comfortable as an entrepreneur doing that, right? Like you have a track record of sort of juggling different projects, different businesses at the same time. The other side of this is the focus side and you know, the entrepreneurial camp that says, you know, you got to remain laser focused on one product or one business or whatever, make that successful. Don't get distracted. Don't do anything else. What's your opinion on that? Like, how do you juggle all of these things at once? Well, first and foremost, I have amazing people that work within the organizations. And the, the second thing is that every one of those individuals has decision making authority. So I do not believe, you know, the worst thing you can have in a business is people with responsibility and no authority or they have authority, but no responsibility. In other words, they're not, they they don't have to live with or die. They make, they make the decision, but then they can walk away. That doesn't work. So, you know, I'm always trying to rethink the organizational structure in, in ways in which we increase every individual in the organization's ability to be the decision maker. And I have been that's probably been the greatest success in my ability to manage multiple projects is and multiple companies and multiple you know entrepreneurial investments is that we create an organizational structure which ensures that decision making rests with the individual and that they have the tools necessary to know how to make a decision with confidence and that's i think that's maybe been the most successful thing i've ever done which is to try and build an organization where people feel like this is mine. I, I get to do this. I get to make this decision. And when you do that, it, the reward is, is amazing. And it gives you somebody like me, it gives me a tremendous amount of free time. I, I don't know how people look at their jobs, how CEOs look at their jobs. I have, I think five jobs as the CEO of this enterprise. The first job is, is goals that are directed at myself for myself. And the number one goal is how do we treat people? And I, I heard this speech a number of years ago, maybe 10 years ago now, from the University of Saskatchewan um, president, David Barnard, at the time. And he was talking about his role as a president, and it really resonated with me. And, and so the second job is how do we – is where are we going? So, so my first job is what's the culture we want to create and, and how do I lead in that culture? Second is where are we going? Third is hire the right people. Fourth is give them the resources. And my fifth job is to get out of the way. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I have a lot of fun doing those four things. When you say, where are we going? I think it, I think it just begs the question, like if you've got so many of these tentacles under the Goba sports umbrella, these different capabilities, these different, uh, service offerings that you bring to the marketplace, do you ever feel like the team is confused about where you guys are going? Um, you know, look, I think it's my job to constantly bring them back if, if there's evidence that there's confusion or if there's conflict um, or if the if the the vision and the strategy isn't articulated clear enough. The number one thing that every single employee in every organization, if I can teach any entrepreneur this, 
this would be the gift that I think is, is the number one thing is that everyone who is part of that process, that team needs to be able to ask three questions. What's my role? How does my role impact the company? And if I'm successful at it, how do I get compensated? Every employee needs to be able to ask those three questions with absolute clarity and the company needs to be able to answer them because if the company can't answer them, those people will not be motivated and they will not maximize their competencies. Now, if you find people in the organization, if you find people in the organization who can't answer those three questions for themselves, well, either one, you haven't given them adequate clarity or two, it's clear they're not motivated or they don't have the competency and therefore you're making changes. Um, but you want people so that they absolutely have clarity and um, it's real critical. So I would say that's the number one objective is if there's any evidence where, uh, you know, clarity is lacking, you, you got to get out there and give it to them. How do you assess early on whether or not prospective COBA employee is going to fit into this culture and fit into your vision? Well, you know, it's, it's, that's often a challenge. We've got lots of people in lots of different cultures, uh, geographically based, um, with lots of different backgrounds and experience. Um, so the, the first thing is that they have to be able to understand, you know, here's my role, what's expected of me, and, and this is how I impact the company, and, and this is my compensation. They can do those things. And what we find out really quick is, and whether they fit, is how they make decisions. We have a decision-making methodology here that people are are taught, and and um, and it quickly is identified whether or not they're capable of of doing that. You mentioned something earlier. I just want to go back to, um, and then I want to ask it through the lens of education. So, this idea that somebody has authority but no responsibility, and then you mentioned the flip side of that, but but that that first version of this specifically. So authority, no responsibility. When you look at the public school system, and I know you've got three kids and now you've got seven grandkids. So when you look at the public system in Canada, for example, teachers union is obviously uh, very present. At least the way I see it is teachers have all the authority and no responsibility because unless they hit a child or sexually abuse a child, they can't lose their job. There's just no accountability. So what we have here is this sort of mishmash of quality of standards when it comes to teaching our kids. If you were to look at, like if you were to rewind back to when you were a younger parent or even as a grandparent, how would you suggest that kids, young kids, get the most out of their education given this dynamic? I think that the education uh, system is due for disruption. Um, that's just my personal opinion. Um, but it, based on the legacy and its and its control based on governments and unions and and the way in which teachers are educated and certified and and the way in which they're disciplined, as you say, I think you know, boy, it's going to take some real somebody is going to have to take some real effort to do that. And, and I'm not sure that anybody's ever got that skill set. So here's my answer to your question. Number one is the responsibility for the education of your child is yours. So if you take your child to school and you feel like they're not being fulfilled, it doesn't mean you say, I'm going to take my kid out of school and be a homeschool. Although there's lots of parents who do that and have been very, very successful. And those kids have done very well. Um, there's lots of 
evidence that says they lack social skills and da da da. But I believe that the ultimate education rests with the parent. You want the most of your child. You want your child to learn as best you can. Now, when I was a when I was a parent, my problem was that I was working too much. To be very blunt, um, you know, I I had events in my life that I look back on now and regret. Uh, I don't know. I don't know that that's the right word. I learned from um, that that. I probably wasn't the best parent because at the time when I was put in parenting and the responsibility, I was also trying to drive this goal of building businesses and being successful financially to provide for the family. And so that educational process rested with my wife. And I am deeply blessed by how she chose to integrate into education. She walked away from her career and in order to protect what I will call the education of our children. And she did it. Um, by volunteering in every one of their classrooms as often as the school would let them. That was number one. She wanted to be present in the kids' lives. Um, so I, I think the parent has to figure that out. And if the parent doesn't have the skill set or the time or the, or, or, or the circumstances or the education themselves, there is now tool after tool after tool which can help. Um, you know, I, I've shared with you in the past, I, I'm a big believer in this the Khan Academy, which is a young man in the U.S. called Sal Khan who, who has created online learning. And, um, and, and very powerful learning. And I, I, so I think there are now tools in which parents can ensure that their kids are getting educated, whether or not it's in the traditional system or not. The unfortunate thing is you need the traditional system in order to continue to advance your education through the channels of university, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, um, so I'd love, I'd love to see in my time frame that, that accountability responsibility uh, was aligned in education, but I don't have the expertise. Let me ask you about your experience and knowledge uh, now giving back as a mentor, but also looking back and reflecting over your 25 plus year career as an entrepreneur. What do you think were or are the most important pieces of advice you've ever received as an entrepreneur? Um, well, this, the, the best piece of advice I ever got um, was from somebody who was not an entrepreneur, um, who at, who at points in my life, uh, in a challenging points in my life actually was there, what I will call to stand in the way and, and ask simple questions like, you know, why, or, you know, why are, you know, there's three great questions for what purpose, at what cost, to what end, for what purpose, at what cost? To what end? And and cost isn't just about money. Of course, it's about about lots of dynamics. Um, and and what's the end game? And I had I had some wonderful people who were able to stand in my way to to bring me back to ground me. I think that that's really important for young entrepreneurs. I met with I do this often. I I, I get a great thrill out of meeting with with young entrepreneurs, and I have got lots of guys call me and say, can you meet with this person? And I, I had a call from the lawyer at McCarthy's this week and I met with the, the young individual that's a client of McCarthy's and they asked me to meet with them. And I, I started by asking those three questions. So, but I asked it in reverse, you know, so what's the end game? What's the end game? And, and he had this vision and phenomenal vision of what the end game was. And I said, okay, so what's that going to cost? And he wasn't really sure and I, and I, and he kind of thought about, and he focused immediately on money. And then he came back and I said, no, 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 no. But what else? Like, what are the sacrifices that you're going to have to make to get there? 
And, and then I went to the last question. So what, 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 what's the purpose of all this? Like, and, and so those have been those three questions when they were given to me in the times that I needed to be grounded, I have gone back to on a regular basis. And I think young entrepreneurs today need to go back to those three things. Do you think it's okay if they don't understand or don't have full clarity on what their end game is just yet? Like, for example, let's just say, um, and recently we interviewed Carl Rodriguez, who's built uh, one of the country's biggest tech unicorns. Um, Soti is the company. You might be familiar. And yeah. he started in his basement and he just openly s- suggests and says that he, he had no end game. You know, his whole goal was finding work that was meaningful to him, that he would enjoy doing. He wanted to build a company that could sustain itself over time, but he had no exit strategy whatsoever. But hold on. Isn't that an end game? I'm not sure. Is it? So sure. For me, for me, an end isn't, you know, to what end isn't an exit, right? An end could be that I go back to the, the statement that Carlos Rodriguez made. That's a, that's a, that's a wonderful statement that says the end isn't definable, but as long as it meets these criteria, then, then I'm still, and it continues to go on that way. Well, then I'm still searching for what that end is. But, the, but those are the, but if you go back to each of those things that he's identified, those become the measurements as to whether or not he's nearing the end, i.e. it stops being sustainable. Ooh, it's getting endy. It's getting end. So he's created criteria by which he hasn't got an end game. He doesn't have an exit strategy, but he does have personal measurements by which he is assessing that end. What's the end game for you, do you think? Well, I mean, you know, I have a responsibility to shareholders, right? So let's, I think that's one of the things that young entrepreneurs forget is, and so I am always looking at, at ways in which I'm ensuring that I'm meeting the expectations of shareholders. And that includes me. You see, um, because I'm a shareholder <laughs> but, and, and a substantial one. But what I, what I mean by that is that sometimes that, you know, you, you forget that, that you have to kind of wear two hats. One is, is that I have a role to work in the company and my compensation and employment is not dependent on my shareholding. I don't have a right to employment just because I'm a shareholder. So, so the, you asked the question, my end game is to ensure that I'm meeting the expectations of my shareholders. And so I'm constantly ensuring that my where we are today is meeting the expectations. And when there is circumstances where those expectations are not being met, then we have to try and find solutions. So in fairness, when you are the entrepreneur, the founder, the, the, the majority shareholder, you are last out. You, sure, you shut off the lights. And let me also say, sometimes it's not about getting out and saying, wow, I sold this successfully. Sometimes it's about shutting the lights off and walking away from something you've been passionately invested in and you spent a lot of money on and it just didn't work. And I've had a lot of those. In your experience, what are some of the filters or criteria that you, that that make you think, or that make you come to the realization that this business isn't working out and it's time to, as you say, shut the lights off? Well, it's happened five times. So just, you know, five times we've had to make the decision. It's time to kill the idea. It's time to kill the project. Um, and there are a number of things. And, and let's be clear: the, there's there's a there's a there's a wonderful chart that goes back 
decades ago, why you can't kill ideas, why, 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 why new ventures can't be killed. And there's things, you know, like the owner is too emotionally attached. Uh, number two, you've got way too much financial capital invested in it and blah, 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 you know, all of these things. But the reality for me is that you have to look at the people, the people piece. So you have to look at the people. What is it that they're delivering and can they meet the expectations that you thought or are there things that are outside of their control that they're working really hard, but they just can't change the outcome? And so, boy, there's an indicator. People can't change the outcome. And it doesn't matter about changing people. Um, So that's one indicator because you cannot build a business without people. They are the worst part of business and they are the best. But you can't build one without them. And so when you see indicators where your people are not able to change the outcome, you realize that there's something deeper wrong here. When you see competitors that are leapfrogging you, it's very, very difficult to leapfrog back. So you have to be aware as to what is your time frame by which, boy, we've got to manage our exit here. So there's a number of those types of indicators, I believe, that 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 come clearly into place, um, you know, certainly financial, obviously. I mean, if you, you keep going the wrong way and you, and you can't sustain the business and can't, you know, pay the bills, uh, you know, the worst thing you can do is start borrowing more money from other sources <laughs> to try and extend it. So, yeah, I mean, everybody has to find what those barriers are for themselves. Um, I probably wouldn't have had the patience of some of these new tech companies that, you know, um, you know, the, where the CEO stands up and says, we're not in the business of making money. We're in the business of building long-term value. Mm-hmm. At, some, at some point you got to make money. So, cause those CEOs must spend their full-time job must be raising more new, raising new money or satisfying the money that they've raised. Okay. So, um, in the last few minutes, I want to ask you about, uh, your experience with how I built this. So this is, um, by the way, one of the best podcasts in my opinion, featuring founders and entrepreneurs doing awesome stuff and they've profiled some amazing people um i highly suggest people go and seek out npr's how i built this if they aren't familiar with the show it's it's a great listen tell me about how that came about for you well it's it's kind of a funny story as you know I, th- I think there's twofold. One is um, at how I built this. They always say, "Hey, if you've got a story you want to share with us, send us a note on." And there's you know an online form, and uh, an individual, one of the individuals in my marketing department, um, actually without kind of saying anything to me, said, "You know, you need to be on there." And so they, I guess, and they they put in the form and put the thing out. Well, like I, I'm announced to me, Guy Raz has a sister. Guy, well, first and foremost, Guy Raz's wife is a Canadian, and he has a sister in Los Angeles. Guy's in San Francisco, and his sister's in Los Angeles, and she has a spring-free trampoline and had had one for years. His kids were always on it, and they love it, and they just think it's the greatest thing, and his sister's had it, you know, as I say, like seven or eight years, and so, you know, there's a bunch of kind of what I'll call those, what, what, what's those, the unique lines of connections or separations or whatever. And, and I guess a bunch of those things kind of intrigued him enough. And so he reached out and said, um, the process for guy is that when they have an interesting company, he then does a personal interview. He just has a chat uh, for a couple of hours. And then he takes his research people and his production people do a bunch of research and between the research they do and the interview that he did, you then find out within a four to six period week period after that interview, um, whether you, whether he wants to do a show or not. 
and whether he thinks it's there's merit to the show. So what happened was we got a call reach out, which said, you know, Guy Alvarez would like to connect and, and see whether or not this is something he's interested in. Would you be interested in connecting with him? And so of course I said, sure. And I was sitting on the, and literally the, you know, two hours or three hours after that, he and I were on the phone and, um, uh, with Dr. Keith Alexander for a bit. And, uh, we chatted about the journey, how this thing had come about. And, uh, and I guess maybe six weeks later, he called and said, can we do a show? So the answer was, sure, I'll do a show. And the beauty is that he is just a great guy. Um, first and foremost, what it, the persona that comes over the radio about Guy Raz is, is in, I think, genuine. It is who he is. There was a New York Times piece written about him in the, a couple of weeks ago in the weekend, New York Times in mid-November. And it was a great piece. And I think it was very reflective of who he is. Just very laid back, family guy, really intrigued by how people do this and the nature of his question. So we were sitting at the chair. We sat in a room, uh, two leather chairs with microphones in front of our face and carried on a conversation for about four hours. I don't know what will end up on the edit floor and what will end up on the guy, Ross, how I built this show, but uh, it was a wonderful uh, little kind of fun experience to do. That's so cool. I mean, and you're an amazing company. I mean, he's interviewed some of the biggest names in entrepreneurship uh, in the world, I would say. Um, so it's such a cool company to be a part of in the last few minutes, Steve, where do you want to point listeners to who want more information about Goba sports and everything you guys are doing under that umbrella? And obviously, uh, spring free trampoline. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, certainly anybody who's interested, um, feel free to, to connect, uh, take a look at us online, obviously gobasports.com. If a listener ha- has a desire to figure out how to connect or learn more, um, always open, uh, you know, it's a great phrase given to me. Um, by a mentor many years ago, be open to the outcome, not attached to it. And um, so uh, that's the way we kind of focus. And so I'm open to any outcome that transpires as a result of this. And it's been a pleasure to get to know you, Adam, and to to do this today. Oh, this has been amazing. Uh, So much good stuff here, Steve. Thank you so much for the time. Um, Really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is brought to listeners in part by Scriberbase, building subscription businesses for retail brands. Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time... Make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An Electric Cast production. See you there. Electric Cast. 
ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast.